This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Marcus Beira. Marcus Beira is the Director General of Business Europe, the leading European business association. Uh, Marcus, there's lots we can talk about in the time we have available to us, but I want to first start off with some kind of assessment, your assessment of the, of the European economy, in particular the Eurozone economy. We've, we've been talking for a long time now, since the financial crisis first hit almost 10 years ago now, about how badly the European economy is doing. Uh, but are, are, almost 10 years on, are there any signs or clear signs of improvement in the European economy, and in particular the Eurozone economy? Well, Paul, I mean, actually, of course, we would have liked the European economy to, 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 to grow faster and to bounce back more rapidly. At the same time, now we see quite a number of uh, positive signs. We see growth in all European member states for the whole protection period, and we also see inflation in all European member states. Uh, so the situation has significantly improved, and also as far as the growth rates are concerned, uh, close to 2%. For the whole protection period, I mean, it's not that bad compared to to the to the potential growth rate. So, so overall, our assessment is is a rather positive one. Of course, and and this needs not uh, to be forgotten. I mean, this is still partly driven by a number of uh, temporary factors. I mean, we still have a relatively uh, favorable exchange rate scenario uh, between the euro and the US dollar. We still have an expansionary policy of, uh, of the European Central Bank and the oil price, even so, is not that the lows we have seen it is still reasonably moderate. So all these factors, of course, are not granted to be there forever. So this means, of course, more needs to be done to, 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 to use this phase now to translate it into, into an even stronger uh, economic uh, situation in Europe. And therefore, there's a lot the European Union will have to do. I mean, deepening the single market further, uh, going forward in the digital single market and, and, and making sure uh, we will have access to global markets because it's very clear that even so our growth scenario is better now. Uh, it's still clear that 90% of the global growth will happen outside Europe. So therefore we need the access to these markets. So therefore ambitious trade agreements, even a scenario where uh, free trade has been higher up on the global agenda. This is something where we need to, to, to carry on to make sure that, uh, that uh, rule-based trade will still be the prevailing system. But then there's a lot of things which will have to be done on member states. A lot can be done at European level, but a lot of the reforms, labor market reforms, tax reforms, regulatory reforms need to be done on the national level and Business Europe is doing every year a survey called the European Reform Barometer, where we do two things. One is we benchmark um, the European competitiveness to the global competitiveness. And the other point is we have a close look together with our member federations. You know that, that it is the leading business associations in the member states and beyond, which is our main member federations. Uh, we have a close look on the so-called country-specific recommendations. You know, this is mm -hmm. the recommendations issued by the, by the European Commission and then uh, decided altogether in the Council uh, which is the reforms each member state should do. And uh, we asked two questions. Number one question being, uh, is it the right reforms? And on this, we over the years got growing and very good feedback so meaning we I mean this year was slightly lower but we're still close to 90% so this means uh, the reforms proposed are the right ones 
But then the other side of the coin is of the of the coin, of course, is uh, are they sufficiently or satisfactorily implemented? And there we we starting from a relatively low rate already some years ago, where it was twenty four percent or something, uh, over twenty two and twenty percent in the year before. This year we have further dropped to seventeen percent, and this is where the problem lies. I mean, we agree on the reforms and then the, on the steps which would be necessary to do. But we, if we only implement them by 17%, this will not be enough to, to, to turn around the situation. So therefore, what we are now aiming for and pushing for is that within the so-called European semester process, uh, the country-specific recommendations will have, to be, will have to become more, uh, the implementation will have to become higher on the agenda and they will have to be more uh, accountable, meaning if we all know what we need to do, and if we don't do it, this will not be good enough. Right. Well, you've made this distinction up front between what the European Union can do on, uh, collectively on the one <coughs> hand and what member states need to do individually on the other. Uh, I hear well, quite recently now President Juncker, President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, saying more and more, maybe through frustration, maybe because he feels slightly under attack, that um, we have to be realistic. There are limits to what the European Commission put forward the limits to what the European Union collectively can do to address these issues. You talked about deepening the single market, advancing the digital single uh, market, uh, those kind of things, but ultimately the real key reforms have to come at national level. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Well, I think both needs to happen. A lot of the reforms need to, need to happen at national level. I mean, if you look at labour market reforms, I mean, and if you look at Spain, they did significant steps and they created millions of jobs. So and you can see that this, this work, the tax policy is still a national issue. We have an issue with tax wages. So you know the, the tax wage for the lowest incomes. I mean, we are 30% higher than the US, still 20% higher than Japan. We need to remedy upon this, but this, this has to happen on national level. We had a drop in, um, in per capita uh, investment in, in broadband infrastructure, which of course will be the backbone uh, of our, of our, of our digital economy uh, and therefore it's a very crucial story but this is a good example of the mix of things there are things which will need to be done on national level at the same time there's also things which need to be done on european level i mean for instance the per capita investment rate uh, in broadband infrastructure in europe is around 90 dollars a year where whereas uh, whereas uh, the, the the us and japan they are either be above 200 or close to 200, so there we need to do more. Uh, so, but there, there is things which, in, this is a good example uh, here, that there's also things which need to be done on, on European level, because number one, we might need to be a little less dogmatic in competition policy, right. to allow for maybe a consolidation of the market we have seen in other sectors, because we don't really have a lot of real European players here. Uh, and the other point is, uh, um, in this field, but this is the other side which is not working with the member states, we will need the European spectrum management. I mean, we have seen in the US that this is what, what made the trick. I mean, in the US historically, they also were uh, issuing spectrum, you know, the frequencies uh, on the state level, and the big step in moving forward was when they, they made this for the whole North America, for the whole US market. Right. So, it's a, this is one good example where both sides need to act right. in order to, to get it done. So it is, it, is, it is a balance of things, 
there needs to be done a lot on European level, but a lot can only happen on, on national level. Right. You, you mentioned trade, and I want to go back to you on trade in a moment. Uh, but then before that, I want to talk to you about Brexit. I have to talk about Brexit with you. Um, how can, well, we have to assume for the sake of argument that Brexit seems almost inevitable, that might, despite what people might think on either side of the debate or different sides of the debate. Having said that, how concerned is the business community about the prospect of the, the absence of the, of the United Kingdom voice around the negotiating table? Well, I mean, number one is, I mean, of course, we were always very strongly in favour of the UK staying within, uh, within the European Union. I mean, this is very clear. I mean, we are not, to, to talk in, in British terms, we're not a pre-mona, <laughs> but we're certainly a pre-greta. Right. So, so therefore, I mean, therefore, we accept the decision of the British people, but we, we certainly, uh, we certainly uh, regret it. Um, having said this, of course, I mean, uh, and specifically after the so-called Lancaster speech and the white paper, it looks like we will have to deal with a third country relationship. Mm. So now our priority, of course, is to, to make sure that the transition is as smooth as possible. Yeah. Uh, we'll mitigate negative effects for, for companies and citizens and we'll be orderly, so in order to, to avoid a cliff edge. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I mean, some of our colleagues, I mean, have summed it up. It's very difficult for us to, to orient ourselves because in a way, everything that happened in the last year is so terribly un-British. Yeah. So therefore, it's <laughs> the whole debate is in a way a bit un-British. So yes. therefore, it is for many on the continent being strong friends uh, of the UK, very difficult to to find the way forward and to, to, to see what they can think about it. But, but at the same time, our main role, we see our role in being uh, standing ready to, 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 to support constructive solutions, because this is, I think, what we all need. But uh, you have asked me about the voice at the table, obviously. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is a concern. I mean, there is certainly a number of issues where the UK has always been a difficult client, so to say, yeah. also in our debates, but I would say there was always good 80% or above, where the UK, from a business perspective, always played a very rational and positive role, being it on competitiveness, being it on openness to trade, free trade, and so on. So therefore, and this is one of the main reasons behind friendship and business logic, where the business community always wanted to keep the United Kingdom on the table. And this is why, of course, we very much regret that this decision has been taken in this referendum as it has been taken. But now we will need to, to find a positive way forward for, uh, for the UK and for Europe and, and to make sure we avoid uh, all damage which is not necessary. Well, you mentioned earlier, before we talked about Brexit, the importance of deepening the single market, about promoting the digital single market and, and, and related issues like those too. But, and I think pretty fairly, um, the United Kingdom is always seen as a major a champion of the single market um, and they will no longer be around the table. Do you see other member states stepping up to the plate to assume that role of champion of the single market in all its different manifestations? Well, I think the logic that the single market needs to be deepened is there right. and it's, it's a growing one and the single market always also plays a key role in our positioning towards, uh, towards the, the Brexit negotiations because we've always said our line is to be constructive, our line is to find solutions, our line is to keep as close as possible economic relationships with our friends in the UK. 
but we have said right from the beginning, of course, not at the expense of the single market. So therefore, the integrity of the single market uh, is maybe a very important point for, uh, for the European business community and needs to be protected. Right. So on back to trade then, you said that trade is, is critical for future growth prospects of the European Union. Um, I would like to just put to you, Marcus, that the, the case for trade is, is not being well made at the moment, maybe. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of people out there uh, making the case for trade in a, in a successful way. How concerned are you about the forces uh, against trade uh, being more powerful at the moment, having more traction? Well, of course, we are very concerned because we know that, I mean, basically free trade, rule-based trade is, the, is first, I mean, the, uh, one of the major sources of wealth in the Western world. And at the same time, it's the best tool to bring out people in the developing countries uh, out of misery. So it is working. Of course, it needs to be permanently readjusted. And, and of course, we now do it differently than we did it 30 years ago. Right. And this is a process which is, which is valuable and which we very much support. Uh, but what we see now is, uh, because this is a mix of things, we see uh, people who are skeptical about globalization because things are getting more and more complex yeah. and, and, and it's difficult for them to follow. Um, it is about, it is, but it's also about uh, being anti-establishment, anti-business partly. Yeah. So this is something we of course need to find an answer. At the same time, this apparently seems to come in waves. I mean, we might go back to Göteborg in Sweden, Göteborg, uh, this autumn for a conference on, uh, on, on the social pillar and I remember the last time I've been in Göteborg was on this uh, European Council when I was still working with the Austrian Chancellor in 2001 okay. where two-thirds of the uh, delegations had to flee via the letter, via the fire letter because, because there was uh, demonstrations there, people <laughs> had forgotten meanwhile and there was Gen Genova, Genova afterwards so, uh, so this comes in waves I think, I think what we need to do is, and, and this is something we, we are working on it, is to explain it better, why it is so important and why, especially in, in, in European countries, uh, we will not play on the same level of wealth and, and well-being when we are not successful in global trade and we need these markets. Um, at the same time, I mean, we can only tr produce the substance and on this we have a very a uh, clear dialogue with our members on the ground in the member states because all these messages then need to be translated into the winning argument in a certain constituency because the winning argument will be very different whether this is in Portugal, Sweden, Italy, Ireland, whatsoever. Okay. So we need to translate it into the national context. And then it's also about testimonies. It's about finding people and for instance we have a good example for our Swedish member, the Svensk Nerlingsleaf, they go out in the cities, they find medium-sized entrepreneurs who go out to the pubs to the people and explain, look guys, I mean, this is how it goes. I mean, you know me, I make, I don't know, 50% of my profit, which allows me to, I don't know, employ 30 people. Half of them, you know them, because we are exporting, let's say, to the US or elsewhere. So this is the kind of dialogue we need because, because you know, overall macro figures, I mean, this, yeah. I mean, it's important, but people, people don't buy it. So we need to, to translate it more and we, we are ready to do. Uh, and this is important. At the same time, we will need clear procedure at the European level. I mean, we have seen this debate around the Canada Agreement, the CETA, which was a bit of a paradox because it's certainly the best agreement 
Europe has ever negotiated. It gives answers to all of the critiques which have been raised in other negotiations. So therefore, this sometimes the debate around this seat does sometimes felt a bit like, you know, this film with Tom Cruise, this inception where you <laughs> come to the third or fourth level of, uh, right. of fiction and you, you, you sometimes think, okay, how, how will we go back to, to the reality in this debate? Yeah. And I think it's Leonardo DiCaprio, but that not Tom Cruise. Ah, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. It doesn't matter. Sorry, it doesn't so matter. We'll do, a fact, we'll do a fact check. <laughs> sorry for this mistake, anyhow. But I mean, well, good thing is I don't need to hand over the Oscars because then I might be wrong. <laughs> but on the specific though of transatlantic trade, United States as opposed to Canada, CETA. I mean, what, what is your assessment of the current status of the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, TTIP? Is it dead, dead in the water forever? Is it is it on life support? Is it just slightly? put to one side with, in the hope of it being revived in some shape or form in the future. What, what is your take on TTIP? Well, I mean, number one, we are very happy that now we have a very clear positive decision of the European Parliament on CETA, on the Canada thing. This is very important and this is something which very much brought back the credibility, the European credibility in global trade policy. So this is number one. But number two, of course, and there's a big logic in, there's still a big logic of having a strengthening deepening uh, economic partnership between Europe and the US. I mean, this is the strongest ties in the world. This is about the Western world. Uh, even so, some put the question mark on the Western world recently, but I think we should see this in the longer in the longer term context. In the longer term context, I mean, this is still the most crucial relationship in the world. So where are we? I think uh, the Trade Commissioner, Cecilia Malmström, has put it in the right words. I mean, we made quite some success in the TTIP negotiations and now it's in the fridge. And I think this is where it can be for the time being. Uh, there's a nice package in the fridge. Mm -hmm. I would say the next six to nine months will be about keeping our relationships up, uh, making sure that no accidentally things happen in the, in, the, in the phasing in phase. And one time, whatever administration is there, will come back to the conviction that, of course, there is a logic and a strong partnership between Europe and the US. I deeply believe in this. Uh, but of course, I mean, we cannot expect to to make significant process in the regional negotiations, let's say, in the, in the next year or two. I mean, I think one okay. needs to be realistic. But the logic, let's say, the basic basic logic of this whole story will is there and will come back one stage. You said earlier, in the context of Brexit, that uh, your members, some, some of your European members, are sort of confused about the, the UK because the, the, the Brits have acted in a very un-British way, as you said. To what extent do your members think that the, the United States have acted in a, in a very un-American way in electing President Trump? I mean, I can imagine from a corporate point of view, it is slightly confusing. You are conflicted because there's the unpredict unpredictability of the administration, which we can all see without being specific. I'm not asking you to pronounce about, about that, Marcus. However, in many ways, one can make the case from a corporate point of view that President Trump and his administration is good news. He, he's a businessman. He's... He seems keen to deregulate, he seems keen to do some kind of tax reform. And so, in broad terms, uh, not just for business Europe, but the, the, the corporate community more broadly, how, what is the current view about the new uh, American administration? Well, number one, as I said, I mean, whatever the situation, there is a strong logic in a, in, a, in, a, in a strong and decent partnership between Europe and the US. That's number one. Because the world needs it and both, both sides need it in the long run. Number two, I mean, we try to see this without emotions. We, we try to, to, to assess what is there, what might come, and, and to, to, let's say, to judge the things on their own merits. 
Number three is, I mean, I think it's very clear that there will be some kind of a positive push in the U.S. economy for a certain time. We see it, of course, at the same time, if you look at the markets, which are relatively high, mm -hmm. of course, this price in uh, strength and growth rate will still have to come. So, so, but, but for the time being, this, this looks well. The question is, how will this work in the long run? So the negative for us is this negative assessment of, of, of global trade, rule-based trade and free trade. So I'm deeply convinced that for the US it's very important to be strongly uh, connected with North American value chains, mm -hmm. including the whole NAFTA. can be a bit different in the short run, but in the long run it's definitely the case. And in the long run, being protectionist only harms your own industry. I mean, of course, you need not to be naive. I mean, we have also debates in the world where we have to say, okay, things have to be based on reciprocity and we need not to be more naive than the others. But in the long run, I mean, you can, you can create a, a better situation for a short time. In the mid and long run, you rather lose on these things. So this is my, uh, this is, this is my, my conviction. And then there will be things, I mean, look, if the corporate tax rates are lowered in the US and our US friends are happy with it, I mean, this is, this is their good right. If there will be ideas in the market to have some kinds of border tax adjustment, which might not be fully in line with WTO uh, rules, then mm. we will speak up and we will say uh, that this is something we not only not appreciate, but we cannot accept. But of course, first we need to have something on the table to see precisely uh, to see precisely what it is. But at the end of the day, I'm still a very strong believer in the US democracy. I'm a strong believer in the check, checks and balances that are there. And uh, we have a democratically elected situation um, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with actions we will need to assess. And, and as I said, but the, the logic uh, of a strong trade relationship of a strong economic relationship of a strong partnership between Europe and the US are absolutely there. And then it's also about doing educational work, you know, like we were saying intra-Europe and mm. it's, it's bringing examples. So when, when Mr. Trump, when the President of the United States was, for instance, attacking BMW saying, well, I mean, you're exporting too much cars to the US, I mean, um, if you look a little bit deeper, you find out, well, of course, there's cars exported to the US because they're high quality cars. At the same time, there's a lot of these cars produced in the US mm. based on, on very heavy European investment in the US, creating a lot of jobs in the US. And then you find out if you dig a little bit deeper that basically BMW is the largest car exporter from US soil. Mm. So and then you might start to question yourself that things at the end of the day are not black or white, but there's a lot of shades of gray. And, and, and then we are where we should be in the debate. Right. To finish off this conversation, Mark, because I'd like to come back to where, almost where we started in terms of the discussion about economic growth and ask you to sit, sit back and, and, in a slightly unusual way, ask you this rather sort of forward-looking uh, question about... Um, I see language in the draft communique of the, the next European summit to the effect that um, member states say it is vital that the benefits of economic growth are spread more fairly and, and equally. Uh, and to what extent is the business world concerned about rising inequality? Uh, and to what extent does that maybe make the way your members have traditionally behaved and thought about issues like this uh, change with the times? Well, I mean, number one, I would say, I would say, I mean, 
business is is more and more aware of the strong role it has to play in society. And if I compare it a little bit in the old days, you you might have had business being rather short-term oriented and politics being long-term oriented. Today you sometimes have the impression that politics are super short-term oriented <laughs> and good business is long-term oriented right. because good good business can only succeed when it's long-term oriented. So in a way you have a reversal mm. of these time scenarios and therefore of course it's obvious that uh, that of course that the that the responsibility of business and society and societal issues has grown and I think the awareness is totally there. So you have you have touched upon uh, the question of inequality and and I think it's very clear that this was one of the leading arguments which led to the to the to the to the outcome of the US presidential elections as it led to the outcome of the Brexit vote in the UK. Uh, at the same time, I think we will have to be very precise in the debate because this is a situation you have in a very similar way in the US and the UK, but you don't necessarily have it in average continental Europe. Right. So I think we have seen, and therefore we need to be precise in the debate. Of course, inequality is an issue which needs to be tackled, but not, uh, but not in an unprecise way, because if you look across the continent, uh, when you talk about inequalities and normally you take the so-called Gini coefficient to measure this, you don't have a, an overall increase in the Gini coefficient. What you have is you sometimes have growing divisions within certain countries mm -hmm. and you have an issue that you have after a phase where the single market and our efforts have created more convergence between the member states that following to the subprime crisis and the financial crisis and so on, we rather had had a growing divergence between the states. So this is what we need to find an answer for. And in order to do so, it's also very much about how we'll be able to deepen the European Monetary Union. Uh, because we need, to, we need to come back to development where we will have growing economic and also social convergence within uh, Europe and within, uh, within the European market. So on this we need to work. I think on this uh, companies are very aware, but we will need to be very precise in the debate and we will not to solve problems uh, which might have happened elsewhere. All right. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. But Marcus Barrett, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure.